I think zoos are are critical to the survival of species. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the podcast that manages to talk about reproduction without it ever getting sexy, the Rossafari Podcast. That's right, y'all. My approach to trying to retain listeners who are starting this episode is to tell you that it's not very sexy. And that's why I'm a drummer and a podcaster, but not a marketer. But seriously, y'all, this is a really, really cool episode. I am really, really excited to share this one with y'all. And I know I say that a lot, but this one is not only cool, but it's cool in a different way. How's it different? Well, you'll find out after you hear me remind you that you need to make sure that you've hit subscribe so you don't miss any episodes of the Rossafari podcast. Also, make sure that you're following along on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rossafari, and on the TikTok at Rossafari Pod. Also, if you want to reach out directly and talk zoo things with me, you can feel free to email me at uh, rossafaripod at gmail.com. And perhaps most importantly, if you'd like to support the pod financially and get some cool bonus stuff, you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash rossafari. For as little as three bucks a month, you can support what I'm doing here. And uh, it, it means a lot. When people do that. So, uh, you know, if you can do that, awesome. And if you can't, because I know money's tight for a lot of people right now, and there are a lot of cool things asking for your money right now, you can also support me by uh, going to iTunes or the Apple Podcast app and uh, leaving me a five-star rating and even writing a review. Those kinds of things help people find the pod so much. Okay, but enough of all of that. Let's talk about today's episode because it is different. It is cool. It is funky. I like it. Today, I am bringing you my interview with Dr. Linda Penfold. Now, she is the director and also the founder of the Southeast Zoo Alliance for Reproduction and Conservation, which is commonly called Cezark. And Cezark is really different. It is a bunch of scientists doing a bunch of cool, sciencey stuff that help with the reproduction and other conservation stuff, as well as just kind of animal welfare. You'll, you'll hear us get into all of it in the interview um, from a lab. This isn't a person who's working directly with animals in a hands-on way but is definitely working directly with animals and their bodily fluids and figuring stuff out and doing things involving test tubes and spinnery things that spin and, like, separate blood. and Okay, so what you are hearing right now is the main problem I had 
with this interview, if I'm being honest with you. I didn't really know what questions to ask because I don't really know reproductive science. Turns out that just sitting in a lab for an interview does not, like through osmosis, hook you up with the knowledge that you need. But we got there, and this is a really cool interview. You are going to hear stories uh, from the lab and also about things that are being done to help giant river otters, rhinos, cheetahs, black tip sharks, sand tiger sharks, all kinds of cool animals. This one goes into a lot of neat places. And it's not just about the reproductive sciences. We're also talking animal welfare. Here is a scientist who is looking at biological evidence of whether animals in captivity are doing well or not. I mean, come on. How is that not relevant to all of our interests, right? This is, this is incredible. I was so excited to go on this journey with Dr. Penfold who will probably kill me for calling her that because she clearly likes going by Linda. Y'all are going to hear some really cool tales, including about something called gamete rescue. Just wait. You just wait. On top of that, I did also ask Linda for a couple of cool stories from the animal reproductive world. Now, we're not talking Rossafari after dark type stories, but there's some interesting facts about animal reproduction that get shared near the end of this episode that I just thought were fascinating. And of course, you get, uh, you know, everybody's favorite ending, the poop story. Poop story. And all of this comes from an absolutely incredible to listen to accent. More to the point, this was my last episode from Florida. We did it, y'all. I had so many amazing interviews and episodes, which are kind of the same thing, down in Florida. And um, the gig came to an end. And, you know, it was kind of interesting. Uh, last week's episode uh, with Dr. Mahovitz was actually the first interview that I did as I drove into the state, hitting Jacksonville. And then as I was leaving the state, I hit White Oak Conservation Center, which is where Seazark is located. Also, where our friends at the Wild Animal Health Fund are located. So I got to go hang out with them for a bit. It was awesome. It was really cool. And I just, I loved the neat little bow of like hitting a facility right when I entered the state as I entered and then hitting a facility right before I crossed the border. To, uh, to end my time in Florida. And so I am ending this series with that as well. Now, y'all know that my next gig was in Vermont. So starting next week, you are going to be hearing from some pretty amazing facilities in New England. Yay! But all right, I've said enough. So let's get to our ad. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamer Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. Daydreamer Studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. 
For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com slash studios. All right. And with all of that said, let's get to it. Without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Linda Penfold, the director of the Southeast Zoo Alliance for Reproduction and Conservation. All right. So um, why don't you tell me who you are, where we are, and, and why there are a bunch of lab coats hanging on pegs in the corner? Huh. Um, well, hello. My name is uh, Linda Penfold, and I am the director of the Southeast Zoo Alliance for Reproduction and Conservation, um, which is a bit of a long name, but it was all about the, uh, the acronym for the website. <laughs> um, so, uh, but that's, that's who we are. And uh, we've, we've reduced that to CESARC. So I'm the director of CESARC. All right. Very cool. And that is, um, that is a lot of words mm-hmm. and a lot of letters. Uh, give, give me the elevator pitch of, of what this is. So we provide uh, basically reproductive support and advice to zoos and aquariums to help them breed the animals they have in their collections. So um, all the zoos and aquariums um, that you may visit that um, have collections of animals that are all part of of established breeding programs and are moved around from zoo to zoo from time to time to get the best genetic pairings. But every now and again, a pair may not be able to reproduce. um, And it's very important to get those genes uh, propagated. And that's when we get called in. All right. Very cool. So you are animal sex therapists. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Reproductive <laughs> specialists, fertility experts. Yeah, yeah. I like my way of saying it better, but that's uh-huh. fair. <laughs> all right, cool. So we will get into all of the reproductive goodness in a minute here. Um, but I, I actually wanted to start off by talking about where we are a little bit. Um, because I, I, there's, a, there's some rhinos out the window, and that that's pretty special. Um, so we are here at White Oak, right, which is a conservation center, but we are not a part of White Oak, right? Um, can you explain to me the, the relationship there? Um, yeah. So White Oak Conservation is a very unique facility, and we are extremely fortunate to be hosted by them. So our labs and our offices are based um, out here at White Oak Conservation. And so we do get to come in every day and see all kinds of amazing creatures on our way to the office. Absolutely. It's really cool that a place like this with so many facilities is willing to share. And you're not the only people that are here. We've also had the Wild Animal Health Fund on before, and they are located here. And um, I just, I think that's such a cool underrated um, service that a facility can provide to to other groups and to other, you know, I just, I love the teamwork element of conservation. So I think it's cool. Plus, like I said, there are, there are rhinos out the window mm-hmm. and uh, I just dig it. So, okay, very cool. Uh, so we are at White Oak. We are in your lab and um, I, I there's so much stuff in here and I'm, I'm just intrigued. It's very, like I said, when I walked in, it's so sciencey in here. Um, do you spend a lot of time in here? Is this a lot of, this is a very sciencey job for you? Uh, Yes, this is one of two labs we have here at White Oak. And then we have a third lab um, that's in the biology department at University of North Florida down the road in Jacksonville. But this particular lab is our gamete biology lab. 
And in this lab, we look at lots of samples from animals, including uh, semen samples to do fertility assessments. Um, and that's some of the equipment that you see here is to help us uh, with that process. Very cool. Very cool. So take me through an average day here. And I know working with animals, there is literally never an average day. But, you know, what, what, is, what is your day like normally? Well, an average day might start with an animal procedure where we are asked to do a fertility exam and we will start with that and we will collect our samples and then we'll come here and examine them under the microscope. Um, we may be freezing the sperm sample for genome resource banking and that allows us to preserve the genes from that individual for the future. And so even centuries from now, that sample could be thawed and the genes from that individual could be put back into a population to get new genes to get genetically healthy populations. That's absolutely incredible. Um, is, is there a large gene bank of, of animals, especially endangered animals and stuff? Um. Um, overall, yes, there are many institutions that do genome resource banking um, throughout the world, actually, but especially in the US. Uh, we have one here, probably quite modest, but we focus a lot on some of the Florida species like Florida panther, Florida key deer. Uh, so we have our own little niche where we do um, some of our work. Very cool. Uh, yeah, I was, I was actually, that was going to be my next question was if, if you actually get to do exams on animals, how, how do they get here and, and all of that? But so we're working mostly with Florida species? Uh, well, no. Um, I think we're, we're probably working mainly with uh, the wider conservation um, species. And we are working with the collection um, and helping them answer questions they may have about the fertility status of their animals or genome resource banking, some of the valuable males. Um, but we also work with um, some of the state agencies um, in the event that a Florida panther is um, uh, knocked down by a car, if we lose the animal, they're able to recover the testes and ship them to us overnight on a coal pack. And we can recover sperm and freeze those those samples so that the genetics of that individual are not lost to the population. And, and we call that gamete rescue. I am astonished. That's such a cool thing. How, okay, so what is the history of, of this? And, and like, how do you guys come up with ideas like that? That's so cool. Well, we're lucky that we borrow a lot of our technology from domestic animals. So back in the 1950s, scientists were working with um, domestic um, cattle and with chickens and trying to figure out how to uh, preserve sperm for the future. And the basic technology is all kind of modifications from that. And so we're lucky that for many species, we have uh, what we call model species. So the domestic cat is a model for all our felid species and the domestic dog for all our canids and then cattle for all our antelope and hoofstock and so on and so forth. So that gives us a jumping off spot so we can then work with the existing protocols and, and then sort of start from there and develop uh, new protocols because every different species needs its own protocol. Right. And that, again, for, for my listeners, is something we also talked about with the Wild Animal Health Fund. Uh, same idea, um, only here we're talking more reproductive. But uh, we start off with a basic understanding of the species that are studied and that are understood. And then we need, we desperately need to keep looking into each species and subspecies and finding the differences to correctly take care of the uh health and welfare and genetics of those populations. And so that's what you're doing here? Yeah, that's basically what, what we're doing here is trying to preserve 
the genetic integrity and genetic diversity of our managed populations. Very cool. Um, and then, so for, for my, you know, for people who are listening here, well, actually, who am I kidding? For me, I don't know a ton about this stuff. Um, is the idea here that you would then just use artificial insemination to get the, the genes back into the population at some point? Yep, that's exactly it. So once we have those samples um, cryopreserved or frozen, um, in the future, if we need to, we can take those samples and thaw them and then introduce them into the female through artificial insemination. Exactly that. That's really cool. And have, I, I vaguely remember reading something, um, you know, those Facebook posts that pop up. And uh, is it possible to sometimes within a species or maybe within subspecies um, do like an artificial insemination of a slightly different species, like a northern white rhino into a southern white rhino, something like that? Or... In some cases, if you are unfortunate enough not to have the exact species that you need, you can see if the technique might work in a very closely related species. Um, that's very challenging because of uh, all the species nuances that you mentioned. But yes, if you have got a subspecies that is very closely related, you can use those for surrogates. Okay, cool. Because that, that, I guess my next question or where I was going with that was just um, thinking about you know extinction. And if we have genes in the bank of, of animals that will go extinct, how do you bring them back? And that's the first thing that popped into my mind. But are there, are there other ways to do that? Or do we just need to not have Jurassic Park happening, uh, you know, in the real world? Um, it's funny. Everyone likes to go down that to Jurassic Park. Um, but it really isn't anywhere near as dramatic as that at all, actually. It's just a question of uh, good management practices and, um, you know, having that strategy to have sufficient animals in a managed population so that when you do use artificial insemination to get those genes back into the population, you've got enough animals for what we call a viable population. Um, it, it becomes tricky using surrogates because what that implies is you don't have enough animals for a self-sustaining population in the first place. And um, so it just introduces a few more challenges, a few more, more levels of difficulty for us. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so, yeah, I guess, you know, I, I need to step back for a second. I'm so fascinated that I'm just firing off random questions. Um, but tell me about yourself. What got you into this? What is your history? What's your education like? Um, you know, it's obviously impressive if you know how to use all this cool stuff around here. So uh, talk to me a little bit about, like, what got you into all of this? Well, I had a fascination with reproductive biology when I was at college, um, and that's what got me into this in the first place. And I actually did a PhD at London Zoo, and so that got me uh, immersed into the zoo field, which is where I discovered how fun the science could be. And then from there, I came over to the United States, and I've worked at the USDA and the Smithsonian, um, based out of Front Royal, Virginia, before I found myself down here at White Oak. And I worked here for, oh gosh, about 13 years uh, before I founded CESARC. So I have been extremely lucky to have been immersed in both the, you know, the, the science and the zoo world uh, for many, many years. And then just recently branched out um, into the aquatic. So we're doing work with the aquariums as well, which has been extremely challenging, um, but very exciting at the same time. Very cool. What, uh, what kind of stuff are you doing with aquariums? What kind of species are you looking at and everything? Well, we were challenged to see if we could get artificial insemination techniques up and running in sharks. Oh, wow. 
Um, so that was an enormous challenge, um, not least because we didn't really fully understand the basic reproductive biology of some of these species. And so this is where the research comes in. So along with the sort of basic day-to-day look at doing fertility exams and assessing um, some males in, in some of the collections, uh, for some species, we don't even know what a semen sample might look like. We don't even know what their hormone profile might look like. And so we have to go back to the drawing board and start conducting basic uh, scientific experiments to understand the basic biology. Because it's only once we understand the basic biology, we can then move towards some of these assisted reproductive techniques that we mentioned earlier. Very cool. Very cool. And uh, it's cool to to be talking to you at a time where you guys are already really established, but also still growing and, and doing a bunch of new stuff. That That's kind of exciting. Tell me about why you started this and and tell me about, like, what was that journey like? What was your first step? How did this get rolling? Hmm, that's a great question. So um, it was sort of after the economic downturn in 2008, and I found myself out of a position, but still had a lot of support, uh, both from White Oak and from local zoos and aquariums in Florida. And um, I decided to set up Seasark, um, being able to sort of utilize my contacts with these institutions. And as I say, everyone was incredibly supportive um, and very helpful. And so encouraged me to sort of like start this sort of shared consortium where we could provide this expertise to multiple uh, zoos and then later with the aquariums. And so that's how it got launched. Um, It was extremely nerve wracking in the early days because I had never run a business before and uh, there were lots of pitfalls and, you know, mistakes made at the beginning and very much flying by the seat of my pants. But I was also very fortunate in the early years to attract some fantastic members of staff who were able to really focus on the, the research and the science and allow me to figure out the nuts and bolts of running a business. And I, I don't know where I'd be without those folks. That's really cool. Uh, what were the first, you know, project or couple projects that, that y'all took on? Um, let's see now. Um, some of the first projects that we did was looking at the reproductive biology of giant river otters. That was exciting. Oh, nice. Um, and then we started to get a little bit involved with, um, some sort of antelope contraception work and then banking, uh, some cheetah samples as well. Um, so kind of, kind of all sorts of bits and pieces, um, over the years. All right. Very cool. What is the thing that you are the most proud of so far? Hmm. I think one of the things I'm most proud of so far is providing um, basically a service for zoos and aquariums where we can help so many of these institutions. So the large institutions often have the funds to have a separate department with scientists to do all the work, to help support the collection. But for some of the smaller zoos, they don't have that kind of budget. And so what we're able to do is um, for a for a membership, an annual membership fee, they get access to a bunch of reproductive scientists who can come in, help them with their collection, conduct research, support their um, aquarists or the zookeepers in the work that they want to do, help set them up with research, 
um, and really provide those services for them in a way that doesn't sort of require them to have a huge outlay of overhead for having staff and, and facilities and all this sort of stuff. And so I think I'm most proud of being able to provide access to so many institutions um, to some of these areas of expertise. Yeah, that is really cool and really important because obviously keeping the population growing and healthy and um, genetically diverse is a huge part of what zoos are doing. Um, and, you know, that, that's, that's awesome to be able to provide that service. Um, how many roughly members do you have? I think we have about uh, 14 at the moment. Nice. Um, mixture of zoos and aquariums. Um, and we are, as you say, we're growing all the time. So we are, um, have a couple of institutions who are interested in joining us that we are working with at the moment. So we shall see what the future brings. Well, that's very exciting. Um, so I have to ask, there's a thing behind me that I was told to, to ask about. So, so tell me about the, um, R2D2 looking <laughs> device behind me. Um, so that piece of equipment is a directional freezer. And um, that is a very sophisticated piece of equipment that allows us to freeze our, our sperm samples um, in a way that provides very uniform cooling. So the samples get uh, a very controlled rate of, of freezing. And that allows us to basically keep more sperm motile at the end of the day once we've thawed the sample. So it's a way of really doing a, a carefully controlled freeze. Um, yeah, and just allows us to to really maximize what we're doing. Cool. And it looks like R2-D2, so I like mm. it. <laughs> I feel like, um, you know, to be perfectly honest with you, I feel like your knowledge and expertise in this area is so far beyond mine that um, what I'm going to ask you to do right now, this is a little different, but instead of firing a direct question at you, is just tell my listeners more about what you do. Because I feel like... All of my questions are missing things because I don't understand what happens here, to be perfectly honest with you. So, so ramble on. Brag about this place. Tell everybody all the things. All the things. Well, some of all the things includes um, the other two labs we have, and that's where we do the endocrine analysis. And we do a lot of work looking at hormone profiles, which allow us to determine if the animal is pregnant or cycling, if an animal has reached puberty. Uh, we can even look at stress hormones and see what they look like. And um, one of the things that's super cool about those labs is not only do we look at the traditional uh, blood samples that you might expect, but a lot of the monitoring that we can do is through animal feces. And what is super cool about that is the keepers are going in anyway and cleaning out every day and collecting the poop, and they can just collect us some samples. And we're actually then able to extract hormone metabolites from those feces and then tell the, the keepers what their animals are doing. Um, so that is really super cool. It's non-invasive, so the animals aren't stressed out by it. And we can get so much information just from fecal samples. It's amazing. Wow. So y'all basically have poop and blood and sperm and, and stuff just flying here every day, don't you? Yes, we do. Lots <laughs> of biological samples, hence the lab coats hanging up behind the door. <laughs> fair, fair, fair. Um, yeah, that's really fascinating. 
Um, yeah, but go on. Tell me more. All the things, not just one of them. All the things. things. So we also do a lot of work looking at the uh, behavior of animals. And um, one of the studies we're doing at the moment, working with the National Aquarium up in Baltimore, is looking at the social dynamics of their black tip sharks. Oh, cool. And so they have seven males in uh, an enclosure. And we are looking at the social dynamics. And it's interesting because we understand inherently that in a group of primates, You'd have all kinds of hierarchy and interactions and aggression and fighting and, and reproduction and all that good stuff. Um, it's all part of the, of the natural behaviors. But we don't tend to think of that in terms of a group of sharks. And what we're finding is we're seeing those same sort of hierarchies and social dynamics in, in groups of sharks. Um, it's perhaps not surprising when you think about it, but it's not really studied very much. And so um, we're excited to be working on this particular project and starting to understand more about, about shark behavior. So, um, so along with the behavior, we're also looking at how animals utilize their enclosures. Um, are they maximizing the use of the enclosure they have? Are they using all aspects of it? Um, and that's challenging. Again, when you go to the aquatics and you want to know how are your aquatic animals, how are your fish using that enclosure? So we're developing tools that help us look at that so we can actually quantify how much space the animal is using and, um, yeah, you know, what impedances there might be. And, and basically it's all to do with how can we maximize and improve their habitat and just continue to really really make sure we're looking out for the welfare of each individual animal. That's a, that's a big push in AZA zoos and aquariums right now uh, and something that's really important. And we've been um, sort of a little bit overwhelmed almost with how many zoos and aquariums are adopting that. Um, we're doing a lot of monitoring. People really want to know um, what is best for their individual animals. And we are really proud to be part of that process looking at animal welfare for these zoos and aquariums. That's really cool. I did not realize that you guys did stuff beyond, you know, reproductive, which is, is very fascinating to me and, and leads me to, um, a, a couple questions actually. Uh, first of all, I have been, I have heard it said numerous times that the ability to reproduce and the desire to reproduce and the ability to reproduce successfully is proof for a lot of people that zoos are not stressing out animals because one of the first things that goes when populations are under stress is, is reproduction and, um, right or wrong. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. Um, I think it is certainly true that if the animal is extremely stressed and not doing well, then the chances of reproduction might be poor. Um, I'd be a little hesitant to say that evidence of reproduction means the animal is not is, is getting the best welfare. I think what we can say is um, we want to make sure the animals are not just surviving, but they're thriving. Right. So it's not a question of are they reproducing, it's are they reproducing and, and really living their best lives. So, But I do think if you have an animal that is not doing well, then you might expect reproduction to be impacted. So if we turn it around that way, then I would say that would be a true statement. Fair, fair. Okay, and then going along with that, uh, as somebody who's, who's studying this stuff, what can you tell me? Are zoos okay? I mean, I know I'm a fan and I know from what I've seen that animal welfare seems great and everything, but is there any data that you are getting that is showing that these animals are well taken care of? And again, I am very specifically talking, everyone on the podcast knows this, we are talking, you know, 
good zoos. We are talking AZA, ZAA. We are not talking roadside zoos. We are not talking Tiger King. Um, but as far as animals that are being cared for, what we believe is correctly in, in captivity and under the proper guidelines, um, you know, of the AZA or whatever, um, are zoos okay? Uh, they are way more than okay. I think, (laughs) I think zoos are, are critical to the survival of species. Um, and as you mentioned, um, AZA and ZAA, uh, set extremely high standards, uh, for all their institutions. And this recent, uh, standard where zoos are now man- mandated, um, to have welfare plans for each individual animal in the collection, which, um, everyone was doing uh, on a day-to-day basis inherently, um, but now we're just taken to a whole new level and having it more um, uh, basically sort of like written down and, and recorded. Uh, it's just been taken to a whole new level, which I really love. But I think uh, we've learned so much from studying the animals in zoos and aquariums that we can then take to their wild counterparts. And that is what's so critical is if you want to understand the biology of an animal, you really need to be looking at it day in and day out to get those nuances. And that's really hard to do with an animal in the wild. Um, so yeah, the animals we see in zoos, they're really uh, fantastic ambassadors for their wild counterparts. And I think, it, I think zoos do a fantastic job and aquariums as well. There you have it, folks, from somebody who is actually a nerd, a, a real scientist. <laughs> um, she wears a lab coat, so I, I believe her. Now, um, but I do think that is really important to actually be able to say that you can, you know, see that. And that is that is really encouraging. Uh, so let me ask this. What is the future for your organization? How do you see this growing? What is what does this look like 10 years from now? I think, um, I, I would like to think that we will continue to grow. When we started out, it was three institutions and, and we've grown over time. We're up to 14 right now. Um, I'd like to see us continue to grow and add more institutions um, to be able to provide this sort of like areas of expertise and support to zoos and aquariums that, that would like to have access to it. So that's what I would like to see, to see us growing. I'd also like us to... Um, to see us expanding our, our, our range into all kinds of different species that are less well studied, there are so many species, um, it, not just in zoos and aquariums, but in the wild, where we know so little about their basic biology. And understanding some of those fundamentals is going to be critical if we're going to conserve them for the future. So I'd like to see us expanding our zoos and aquariums. I'd like to see us expanding the species we do our work on. I'd like to see us understanding more and more and more about all the amazing animals that we, we share this planet with. Yeah, definitely. That makes a lot of sense. And I guess uh, my next question is kind of, I don't even really know how to ask it, but I'm, I'm going to try anyway. Um, what do you see as the future for, I'm just going to call it reproductive conservation. I don't really know if that's a, a phrase, but in terms of how the reproductive sciences and how things like AI and other things that you all are working on, um, can impact conservation, especially in the wild. I understand the idea of helping zoos with their populations and stuff, and that's hugely important. But beyond that, what do you, what do you see as the future for, for those types of things? That's a great question. Um, we've had a lot of advances with the assisted reproductive technologies 
um, that and have been applied to non-domestic species and endangered species. Um, but it's very intensive and requires enormous amount of resources. Um, so it's sort of used judiciously as it's not always perhaps the most practical way. Sometimes it's a last-ditch attempt to try and, to try and to work with the species. I think um, what is really critical for reproductive conservation is to continue with these studies to understand what drives the reproductive mechanisms. And that's going to be increasingly more important for some of the species that are so heavily impacted by the environment, with now we're back to talking about our aquatics, for example, um, because if we're having um, climate change, um, things like ocean warming are really going to impact reproductive rates of some of our species that are driven by some of these environmental factors. So even though we like to talk about the, the whiz-bang technology like cloning and all that cool stuff, I think what's going to be really important is really getting back to basics and understanding uh, what is the mechanism that induces this animal to reproduce and how is that going to be impacted if the environment changes. And so more studies along those lines, I think, and how they're going to impact reproduction, I think are going to be, are going to be critical. Um, with that said, I think this genome resource banking, whether it's, um, whether it's banking gametes from coral from endangered reefs um, all the way up to, you know, elephants on the savannah. Um, having these genes banked just in case something happens that's devastating uh, is going to be critical so you've got something that you might be able to work with in the future. Absolutely. And uh, I literally last week was at Moat's uh, Coral Gene Bank. Um, I'm, I'm amazed. Actually, one of the funniest things is, so I've been down here in Florida for six weeks. I've done something like a dozen interviews. It's been really cool, but the interconnectedness of everything makes it feel like I did this on purpose. And I so didn't, but like, here you are talking about coral gene banking and you were talking about, um, the, the Florida Panther. And that is also an animal that we've talked about, you know, current conservation efforts with and stuff um yeah even the key deer i got to see one of those that is uh at the santa fe teaching zoo and they are like really cute and small but yeah it's just it's neat how all this stuff is interconnected and i think uh florida you know gets a bad rap uh in the national news a lot and you know there's all the florida man stuff and everything uh and you know some warranted some not whatever well, you know but what i will say is that the science that is happening down here and the way that the facilities that i've interacted with work together down here is so cool and um you know, one of the funniest things about it to me is that a lot of the places, not not counting the actual zoos, obviously, uh, but a lot of the places that I've been to down here are not open to the public or, you know, do like private tours or something like White Oak or whatever, you know, um, are not super talked about in the general public. Like even if people know about White Oak, they don't know that you're here doing this amazing work as a, as a separate organization, you know. Um, and also a lot of them are down like, dirt roads where you see a bunch of, you know, people who, who maybe don't necessarily believe in the sciences are living there and, and based on the flags hanging outside of their houses and stuff. And then you drive another mile and you're at this incredible conservation center and you're talking to people doing state of the art science to save animals. And, um, I have just found that juxtaposition so fascinating. It's got to be cool being down in Florida working on all this stuff. It's uh, it's super cool being here in Florida. 
And the level of collaboration, not just within Florida, but throughout the US, is phenomenal. And I think people that work in zoos and aquariums um, as a profession, they are highly collaborative. And, and that's because they've got one thing um, that they're focusing on, and that is preservation of all these species. And so they're working really hard to have these populations, zoos and aquariums, both for education and for research, and just to better understand uh, these biological systems so we can help their wild counterparts. So everybody is working together to try and, you know, crack these mysteries and solve these puzzles. And uh, it's, uh, it's challenging, but it's super fun to be part of all that. Yeah, yeah, I, I would imagine so. Um, very cool. So... Let me ask you, um, do you ever miss or do you ever wish that you got even more hands-on time with animals? I mean, I feel like you're working so hard to, to save species and, and then you're in a lab a lot and that's great. And I know that you are very passionate about what you do, but do you ever, ever wish that you were more hands-on or do you like love going to zoos on your day off or anything like that? I do love going to zoos on my day off um, and aquariums as well. Uh, that's super fun. But I have a bit of a guilty secret that I'm now going to share with the world. Um, I am super excited about the question, about the puzzle that I'm trying to solve. So I love working with animals and I have a fantastic time working with all the folks that do work with the animals, but I'm not itching to get my hands on the animal per se. I am itching to get into the lab to try and see if I can discover the reasons behind why things do what they do. So I am indeed a nerdy scientist. <laughs> and so I am perfectly happy in my lab and that is, that is where I'm really fulfilled and that is where I get really excited is just discovering new things. I mean, that's, that's absolutely awesome and obviously essential to have people like that, you know. Um, it's, a, it's probably a weird, weird comparison, but um, people always ask me as a drummer, don't I wish that I was the front man? Don't I wish that I was the one, you know, getting the biggest cheers and everything? But it's the same thing. I really love sitting behind the people and assisting and knowing that when you're playing your guitar solo, I can find a beat that's going to make it a little funkier and a little better and make you play better and stuff like that. And that's what I love about performing. I love that far more than I love even taking a drum solo and, and making the audience cheer or whatever. Like, I, I think it's really essential that there are people who enjoy the behind the scenes work and, and hiding in their lab coat or behind their drum set or whatever. <laughs> and I realized that I totally just compared reproductive science to drumming. And that's probably a stretch now that I think about it. But I do think that it's, it's pretty important that, you know, behind the scenes people have a passion for what they do, just like so many keepers do, you know? To me, it always comes back to passion. That has been the biggest theme on this podcast. I would agree 100%. Awesome. Yeah. So um, other than, you know, yours, uh, are there any conservation organizations that you like and just love to, to, to talk about or give a shout out to or anything like that? Oh my gosh, there's so many. Uh, Coral Restoration Foundation down in Key Largo, um, AZV Wild Animal Health Fund, of course. Of course. Um, oh my gosh, now I'm put on the spot. Um, <laughs> let's see what else is there. Um, not necessarily a conservation um, institution in and of itself, but you should check out Spot a Shark um, out of North Carolina. 
Spot a Shark USA, very cool program. Um, gosh, what else? So many. Uh, International Rhino Foundation, Cheetah Conservation Fund. Yes. So many, so many great, great institutions out there. It's just hard to, to, to name them all. Yeah, that's fair. That's that's very fair. Um, speaking of cheetahs, I don't know this. I might cut this whole thing if the answer is no. We'll see. But speaking of cheetahs, um, do you know anything about Dave and Adrian at Columbus? The first successful AI cheetahs? I think they were AI. Um, or was it in vitro? It might have been in vitro fertilization. I confuse those two because I'm a dork. Um, but do you know? Do you know anything about them, or am I just barking up the wrong tree here? I do know about that. That was super exciting. Our um, colleagues at the Smithsonian had done some fantastic research with the Columbus Zoo to produce those cubs, and um, of course, I, and I trained with that group out of the Smithsonian. Nice. So again, part of that small world, highly collaborative. Uh, but so proud of the work that's being done up there. That was absolutely amazing and a real, yeah, I mean, a real breakthrough and um, just fantastic science. So, yeah, that's super exciting. Yeah, I really love the work that they do there and got to see them when they were little cubs and everything. And they're very special cheetahs to my heart. So I just I thought I'd ask. Um, and I'm, I'm, I have to tell you, by the way, I'm incredibly jealous that you've gotten to work up at uh, Front Royal. Um, I'm obsessed with that facility. I have been there once. I have, have talked to a couple of keepers there. I think we're going to try and get them on the pod at some point, but what an amazing place. Um, I, I loved my time at Front Royal. I love the people. I love the facility. I love the area. Uh, and I still go back and catch up with my friends there from time to time. So that's wonderful. Um, but what a great group of people there and fantastic scientists as well. And uh, yeah, I've got so much respect for that place. Very love cool. Love Very it, love cool. It. So uh, did we miss anything? I think one of the big projects we're working on right now is working with Georgia Aquarium and North Carolina Aquariums, um, along with National Aquarium and a bunch of other institutions who have helped us over the years. And we're working with sand tiger sharks. And what's super cool about that is we're studying the sharks in the aquariums and then we're using what we're finding to better understand the sharks that are off the coast of the United States. And we know these sand tiger sharks are highly migratory and they're moving up and down every year. Um, but we're trying to figure out what drives that and where are they going and all this sort of stuff. So we've been using some acoustic telemetry to basically monitor where they go and, and, and get some data um, but what's very cool about this is it ties it all back to the sharks in the aquariums where we're getting really sort of fine-tuned knowledge about their reproductive cycle. Um, so we can then apply our findings back to their wild counterparts. And to me, this is something that, that's, um, that's very special, to be able to study the aquarium animals and really get good information that we can then apply to, to their wild counterparts, literally just off the coast here in Florida even. That is really amazing. And, you know, I think what you bring up is a really important point. And, and for my listeners, um, you know, I know that, that we all from time to time deal with uh, anti-captivity people and, um, and have to answer some questions. And one thing to have equipped in your toolbox is that we all use the phrase um, ambassador, meaning ambassador to the wild species. And I think what a lot of people think that means is that they're there as a 
a show pony. You know, if you see a red panda, then you're going to care about a red panda in the wild. And then you're going to maybe make a donation to Red Panda Network. And all of that is very true. And that is definitely part of the ambassadorship. But it goes so much further than that. Because having the animals in captivity also allows us to study them, to do the science that we're talking about right here. And that's a side of the ambassadorship of these animals that I don't think gets talked about enough, but is really worth mentioning to people who have a problem but are willing to listen. Um, It's not just that if you see a sand tiger shark, then you may like sand tiger sharks and want to help sand tiger sharks in some way. They are actively being studied. That science is actively being applied to the wild populations and, and helping them. And that just does not get spoken about enough. I think. I think that's very true that there's also been other cases where, um, vaccines have been trialed in, um, say Florida Panthers that have been in zoo settings where you're trying a new vaccine and you want to make sure that it's not only going to be, uh, effective, but it's going to be safe and you need to uh, watch that animal for a while and make sure it's got no adverse reactions before you start taking it to the wild and start vaccinating wild Florida panthers. So uh, these animals that are maintained in, in zoos and aquariums play a really vital role for these wild counterparts. And yeah, um, that should not be underestimated for sure. Um, I thought it would be fun to ask you for just some interesting, weird animal reproductive stuff. Right. Wow. That's quite the challenge. Um, So much to choose from. Let's see. So we're about to get ready to do some work with coral in August, going down to Key Largo to the Coral Restoration Foundation. And what we're doing there is we're freezing sperm from uh, staghorn coral, Acropora cervicornis. But what is super challenging and kind of super cool about that is this particular species spawns once a year, three days after the full moon in August for about two to three nights. That's it. And then it goes about maybe half past 10, 11 o'clock at night. So you have a few hours, two to three days, once a year to get all your samples, not just to freeze for genome resource banking, but to try and get all your experiments done if you're trying to study new ways of freezing or understand the biology better. So nothing like a little bit of nighttime pressure to, uh, yeah, raise the bar. That is that is something special. Um, anything else? Uh, yeah, this is just an extremely random fact, but we did some work with um, Hartebeest and Bontibok, and they are in the Acelephony family of antelope. And we were doing semen collections from these guys, and what we noticed, this particular family, for some reason, um, the semen is pink. Um, <laughs> And we're not talking, you know, pale pink or pastel pink. We're talking, you know, bright pink, bright, bright pink. And it's because there are porphyrins in there, which is an iron, uh, an iron compound. And it's that heme compound is giving it that pink color. Um, and the first time we saw it, I was a little bit alarmed because I was actually you know, concerned it was blood, but it, it wasn't. We looked under the microscope, not a single blood cell to be seen. And it just happens to be a distinguishing fact of this particular group of antelope that they have pink semen. So there you go. Now you know. I am so sick of people saying that pink isn't manly and that just proves it right yeah, there. Exactly. That's amazing. Uh, and how about one more? The, um, the other fact I have, reproductive fact, um, goes back to the sand tiger shark. And they are unique of the shark species in that their mode of reproduction 
is they um, they ovulate the eggs and the eggs go into the uterus and they start to hatch in the uterus. And then the embryos are swimming around uh, in both the, the right and the left uteri. Uh, but the first one that hatches is usually the biggest one. And the biggest embryo will eat all the other embryos and then all the eggs until there's just one one embryo in each uterine horn. And if that's not the most extreme form of sibling rivalry you've ever heard of, then I don't know what is. <laughs> so we've been pretty prim and proper for, for all of this. <laughs> um, but, but now it's time. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossifari poop story. Hit me. Let's see. Yeah. Well, we certainly do a lot of work with poop. And um, I think our favorite is uh, working with the koala because all they eat is eucalyptus. So it's like a spa day in the lab if we're working with uh, koala poop. That's great. And uh, not quite so great as if we're working with something like a fishing cat, carnivore that eats fish. <laughs> so you can only imagine. So um but uh, yeah, so very exciting. Um, lots of information though, just from uh, just from the poop. And so yeah, that's the scoop on poop. Love it, love it. So the the less smelly, the better for you. Not scientifically, personally. Oh, personally, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Give me herbivore anytime. Yeah, absolutely. Fair, cool. Well, thank you very much for doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> Isn't Cezark awesome? I really loved all of that. I had no clue when I went to talk about reproductive sciences that we were going to end up talking about like animal welfare and stuff. Uh, I really enjoyed the fact that about, I don't know, 15 minutes into it, I even seemed to remember how to do interviews and ask questions. But uh, Linda was absolutely amazing. And um, I just thank you so much, Linda, uh, for for doing this interview. Also to Caroline from the Wild Animal Health Fund, thank you for setting all of this up because without you, my friend, none of this would have happened. If y'all haven't checked out the Wild Animal Health Fund episode, um, you really should. It's really cool. And it talks about some other neat behind the scenes sciencey stuff that is happening in the world that, uh, you know, you don't see when you go to a zoo, but is impacting the lives of, of all of the animals that live at zoos in amazing ways. And also helping them be ambassadors to their wild counterparts, like we talked about in this episode. Whew, that was nice tying it all together there. And speaking of nice, I would like to say a nice big thank you to PJ Bevan and Lara Shank, who are my Red Panda level patrons on Patreon. Much love to you both for your constant support. And all right, y'all, uh, I guess I'll be talking to you later this week for Zoo News. And um, then our next episode will be from, like I said before, New England, gonna gonna head all the way up the East Coast for my next gig and my next series of interviews. So um, looking forward to sharing that with y'all. And uh, until then, remember, friends, the word credits backwards is Steiderk. The Rossifari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. 
You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.